Donald Trump's son Eric on the witness stand today in New York testifying in the fraud trial against the Trump family business. Don Jr. finished his testimony earlier today and the brothers are executive vice presidents at the Trump Organization. They're also co-defendants in this trial. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is outside the courtroom and Bryn, there were some tense exchanges between Eric Trump and the assistant attorney general about the president's financial statements. What happened there? Yeah, Jessica, it's important to keep in mind as we follow this trial, these financial statements are the heart of the case. And so when the state's attorney general, uh, assistant attorney general, was questioning Eric Trump on the stand, she was asking him questions about how long has he been aware of financial statements? Has he had any part in preparing those financial statements? And Eric Trump essentially under oath said that he wasn't even aware of financial statements until the investigation from the AG started just a few years ago. Well, the assistant attorney general questioning him brought up emails, brought up phone calls, brought up testimony from prior witnesses, making it clear that he had knowledge about his father's financial statement of conditions from more than a decade ago. Let me bring up one graphic to show you exactly what was said on the stand. The question was, so you did know about your father's annual financial statement as of August 20th, 2013, didn't you? And that was from the state's attorney. And it's in an Eric Trump response. It appears that way, yes. So a little bit of a contradiction in the testimony of Eric Trump. This led to a very tense exchange. Our fellow colleagues in the courtroom say Eric Trump leaned forward into the microphone and yelled a little bit louder that he again had no part in preparing the financial statements uh, of his father. Again, information that is very much at the heart of this case. Now, not distancing himself from the preparation of those statements is also something his older brother Don Jr. did pretty much on the stand for the entire three hours that he testified when he was finished. She did come down the courtroom steps and he went to the camera. I want you to hear what he said about this civil fraud trial. Before even having a day in court, I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountant to do, wait for it, accounting. I mean, think about that. What, what does that do for literally any other business? Now, these sentiments sound probably very familiar to you if you're following this because we've heard much of this same uh, argument made by his father when he comes to the microphone. Uh, Don Jr., a little bit less contentious on the stand. We'll see how Eric Trump's testimony continues. Um, it's unclear how long he will be on the stand if cross-examination is going to happen from the defense. But, of course, we have everyone in the courtroom. We'll continue to follow this for you guys and keep you updated. Bryn Gingras for us outside the courtroom in New York. Thanks so much, Boris. The fate of Trump's business empire may be on the line in New York, but his dominant grip on the GOP primary race appears to only be growing tighter. However, one Republican rival is rising in the polls. And this morning, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former governor, laid out how she thinks she can catch the 2024 front runner. Listen. I do think I can catch Trump, and yes, he has a good lead on us, but the reason he's got a good lead is we still have a number of candidates in the race. As you seen, see that wind down, as you see that field get smaller, you're going to start to see his lead get soft. Let's chat with Ron Brownstein. He's a senior editor for The Atlantic. Ron, is that strategy going to work? Mm -hmm. There are echoes of 2016 there yeah. when it 
Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were all saying, oh, wait, once they get yeah, out, we'll, right. we'll consolidate. It, look, it, Donald Trump has as big a lead as we've seen any candidate have in any contested primary since the modern primary system started in 1972. But having said that, I think there is a more clarified path out of Iowa for Nikki Haley than there might be for Ron DeSantis if she can get a boost in that, in that first state. You know, DeSantis is running in Iowa the way that Mike Huckabee did in 08, Santorum in 12, Ted, uh, Ted Cruz in 16, trying to consolidate evangelical mm. support and uh, max out with those voters. The problem is that each of those candidates, after winning Iowa, immediately cratered in, in New, New Hampshire, Hampshire, where there aren't that many of those yeah. voters. Haley is really mobilizing a different constituency. She's more uh, consolidate, trying to uh, uh, consolidate white-collar suburban Republicans. So if she can get past DeSantis in Iowa, and get a boost by finishing second, there's a more logical pathway to her because there are more of those voters in New Hampshire. And then, of course, the calendar turns to South Carolina, where she is the former governor. Yeah, I want to ask you about some of the comments she made last night on The Daily Show regarding mm. uh, Florida's Governor DeSantis. But to what would you attribute her rise in the broader sense? Do you think it's a sign that uh, some in the party are ready to move on from Donald Trump in a way that is significant to the race? Well, I think her rise right now has more to do with her and DeSantis than it yet has to do with Trump. I mean, she's rising in part because she's performed well at both debates mm -hmm. and she's caught the attention of a lot of Republican voters. But DeSantis has also had problems in his performance. I mean, on, you know, on paper, he seems stronger than he's been in practice. And he's made a strategic choice that has really limited his reach. I mean, he basically has marketed himself as Trumpism without Trump. Yeah. Turns out that the vast majority of Republican voters who want Trumpism also want Trump, right. right? And so Haley has had, a, I think, a, a more uh, kind of um, coherent appeal to the portion of the party that is resistant to Trump. The problem, as you're suggesting, is that that is not a majority. And she ultimately yeah. has to find a way to, if she is going to seriously challenge him, or if anybody's going to seriously challenge him, to peel away some of those voters who now support Trump, but are not irrevocably wed to him. And one question will be whether her argument for generational change hmm. and electability will prove more appealing to those maybe sometimes Trump voters than DeSantis's version of Trumpism without Trump. You mentioned that her ascendancy is tied to how well she's done in debates. Obviously, there's mm. one next week. We don't expect that Donald Trump is going to be there, but should he take him on more directly now? Is it time for her to pivot to focusing on Trump? Uh, I think, uh, you know, at some point, obviously, she's going to have to make that case. And, and she, is, she is trying to do it in a kind of indirect, gentle way by talking about generational change. And as I said, that might prove uh, less confrontational to some of the Trump voters than the DeSantis argument of Trumpism without Trump. At the moment, she can, I, I, her first goal is to try to eclipse DeSantis and become the clear alternative. So I'm not sure she really has to take on Donald Trump yet. But if she, you know, if she can come in second in Iowa, there is, I think there's more runway for her to use that momentum effectively in New Hampshire than there would be for DeSantis, based on the precedent of Huckabee, Santorum, and sure. Cruz, who all got less than 12% or less of the vote in New Hampshire after running in Iowa the way DeSantis is. And if she can do reasonably well in Iowa, South Carolina is obviously a, you know, a, good, friendly, a good friendly territory for her. But you're right, eventually to go beyond this 
30% maybe of the party that is really looking for something else than Trump, she's going to have to find a way to convince some of those voters now with Trump. Uh, Ron, I, I quickly, yeah. I promised you a question on, on Haley talking about DeSantis. She made a joke on The Daily Show about him in high heels. There's this story out there about him potentially having lifts in his boots. Ah. She talked about if he's wearing high heels, then he should be able to run in them. She, she had a, 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 we actually have the sound. Right, let's, let's hear it. it. Yeah. yeah. Are you wearing higher heels than Ron DeSantis next week at the debate so you can look taller than him on the stage? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure that out. I can tell you, I've always talked about my high heels. I've never, um, you know, hid that from anybody. I've always said, don't wear them if you can't run in them. So we'll see if he can run in them. She she seemed uh, to take some joy in that yeah. question, but but we've seen Ron DeSantis now several times try to reset his campaign. It hasn't really worked. Do you think yeah. we've seen the high point, pardon the pun, mm. of Ron DeSantis's run for the you presidency? You know, I keep thinking of Ginger Rogers. You know, she did everything Fred Astaire did backward in the heels. <laughs> um, but look, uh, you know, this this is sort of emblematic of the problem for, for, for DeSantis, which is that, you know, as, as an actual flesh and blood candidate, it's just been consistently a little more awkward than it seemed it was going to be the morning after the election when he won Florida uh, in a landslide. And, you know, that is, I, I don't think that is the biggest problem. I think the big